Uh, what has surprised me the most about the reaction to Soul Boom is how open people are to it. Because I, I had no idea how people were going to receive it. I knew a certain handful of my friends would really dig it because we have these con conversations. But people have been very open to the ideas in it because I think that the world is hurting. We're in a lot of pain. Things seem very lost and on the wrong track. And people are now kind of like, God, show me something that's going to work because the current systems aren't working. Welcome to Ye Gods. I'm Scott Carter. I first saw what a great actor Rain Wilson is when he played Arthur on Six Feet Under. And we met briefly in 2010 when he was on HBO's Real Time to promote Super, an overlooked gem. He is best known for his portrayal of Dwight Schrute on The Office. And Rain has leveraged the fame and wealth that came to him in his 40s to not only better himself, but to better perhaps the world. He founded a digital medium company, Soul Pancake. He co-hosts the podcast Metaphysical Milkshake with my friend Reza Aslam. He has a new five-part travel series, Rain Wilson and the Geography of Bliss, now on Peacock. And he's written the third book, Soul Boom. And so he is a busy man and a good one. Rain Wilson, welcome to Ye Gods. Ye gods, Scott Carter, it's a thrill to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. I so love all of your projects. They tackle the third rail topics, uh, God and morality and death. Soul Boom's subtitle is Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. And you write that we should have one and that it might lead to the creation of a new religion. But I want to first ask you, how do two TV shows from the 1970s frame your spiritual overview? That's a great starting point for Soul Boom, why we need a spiritual revolution. I was raised by a television in the 70s. I know there were a lot of latchkey kids kind of raised by TV in the 80s and, and early 90s, but I, I, I beat them to the punch. And spent uh, an inordinate amount of time in front of our RCA color television that was a you know just a giant box like an obelisk from 2001 a space odyssey in our in our pathetic little rental living room in Olympia Washington and my first foray into that world was uh with two of my favorite shows kung fu and star trek and as I was starting to write about what a spiritual revolution might look at, I wanted to define my terms. So first of all, the first term I want to define is spirituality itself, because that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So for me, spirituality is anything that a monkey can't do. So <laughs> monkeys can fuck. Monkeys can accrue objects. They seek comfort, pleasure, and social status. We have monkey parts of ourselves. And I don't mean to denigrate monkeys. I love me some monkeys and some animals. But anything in addition to that, the creation of art, loving bonds, seeking transcendence, um, cultivating what I would call spiritual virtues like patience, honesty, kindness, compassion, Seeking to promote and explore beauty. Um, these are some of the aspects of what I would call spirituality. It's of 
of and concerning the spirit and and the soul and not concerning so much the material. So that it doesn't involve ghosts or seances. It doesn't necessarily involve church on Sundays. It doesn't necessarily involve, you know, a favorite yoga class and crystal and chakra. All of those are kind of aspects of spirituality potentially, but it really has to do with our non-material part of what it means to be a human being. So in my vision, there are two paths that we walk on as we seek to explore the spiritual. One is the Kung Fu path. So for those listening who don't know, Kung Fu is a show from the 70s. It only lasted three, three glorious seasons with Kwai Chang Kane being the hero. And he grew up in a Shaolin monastery in China where he learned martial arts, but he also learned incredible spiritual wisdom from his teachers and his masters. That is a combination of Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism. And then he is propelled out of the monastery into the Old West because it's set in the 1860s or 70s. So he's wandering around the Old West in the United States looking for his brother. So you have this Chinese person wandering through a really racist, violent landscape. So for me, just in a nutshell, this is one part of our spiritual path. It's the Kung Fu path. It's who I am, the wisdom that I've accrued, seeking to make myself ever more wise and kind and thoughtful, sharing my wisdom, and being beset by tests at every turn. Maybe I'm not beset by racist cowboys who want to kick my ass, but I am beset by, you know, failure and disappointment in show business or struggles with my wife or son or, you know, what have you. So we seek to bring serenity, wisdom, and clarity and consciousness to the vicissitudes of life. That's the Kung Fu path. The other path has to do with humanity itself. Humanity has a spiritual path to walk as a species on this planet. And this is best exemplified by Star Trek, which, although it was not created to be a spiritual show, I view it as being very spiritual because what's happened on planet Earth? I was always very intrigued. How come, they, how come we never visit planet Earth on Star Trek? Humanity has matured. We've had a big war. We have solved racism. We've solved income inequality. We've solved sexism. We're at peace with nature and our destiny. And we are progressing forward because we've solved those issues. We're then able to go to outer space and seek out new life and new civilizations. And this is what we're wrestling with right now. And it's something, and Scott, you remember the 1970s when people would talk about world peace, you know, all the time. And that's what they've achieved in Star Trek, world peace and unity, and then they get to bask in the glory of technology and fulfill our species-wide destiny. So we all have a part to play in that maturation and spiritual illumination of all 8 billion of us on the planet. So those I see as the two paths that we all walk. So this is really interesting because at a very young age, you're getting entertainment that is for the masses, but you're receiving it in an incredibly profound <laughs> way so that it stays with you all these years. Yes. 
I never watched Kung Fu. Let me ask a question. From your description of it, doesn't he get into fights at the end of each episode? Isn't that what things are leading to? And if so, what does that say about the spirituality he is attaining? Well, that's the hook of the show is that you're going to see some really good ass kicking. And so you've got to include that. You can't have a show called Kung Fu where he doesn't actually use mm -hmm. Kung Fu. But yep. he seeks at every turn to be peaceable, to to find a, a peaceable solution. He only acts in, in extreme self-defense or in defense of innocent people. And um, But along the way, he's sharing incredible nuggets of Eastern uh, wisdom as he seeks to avoid conflict at all cost. Well, I want to, having established that as a framework, and we'll be coming back to it, I want to get a little bit more context about where you personally are coming from. And in your astounding memoir, The Bassoon King, you start with, I had the biggest, fattest head of any baby that was ever born into the human species, which I think may be the best first sentence in any American book since Call Me Ishmael uh, began <laughs> Moby Dick, which also featured a large-headed protagonist. You say that your home and you're, and you're, you're raised Baha'i, and I wondered if you could just describe the Baha'i faith a little bit for those who don't know much about it, and that your, hippie, your, your parents were kind of hippie and artists, am I correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hippie bohemians. Yeah. So I was raised a member of the Baha'i faith, and the Baha'i faith incorporates and includes the spiritual revelations, let's say, of all of the great spiritual teachers throughout the millennia. Baha'is view them all as coming from the same source, one divine God. So going way, way, way back to Abraham, Krishna, Zoroaster, uh, the Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, Baha'is view all of these great spiritual teachers, plus countless more that were lost to the annals of history. Let's say they didn't leave a written revelation. And Baha'is view them as all coming from the same source, delivering essentially the same message, foundationally the same message. It's easy, yes, to find differences between the religions. A lot of that can simply be blamed on dogma that rose up in the hundreds of years following the uh, initial pure revelation of that divine teacher. Baha'is also believe in Baha'u'llah. It's a title of a man from the 19th century Persia that means the glory of God. And Baha'is are followers of Baha'u'llah as we feel that he has a new revelation for humanity in this day and age. But as a Baha'i, I revere the Bible. I revere the writings of the Buddha, of Lord Krishna. And that's all incorporated into my spiritual journey. So there weren't a whole lot of Baha'is in the United States, and then the hippie days came, and everyone was on a spiritual search, and a lot of people became Baha'is. So my parents became Baha'is during that time, and I was born in the late 60s on a kind of bohemian houseboat in Seattle, and I grew up with um, prayer gatherings, singing, meditation, people from various faiths coming to our house talks on spirituality and big topics. So, of course, I look back at my TV shows as 
you know, I see them through a spiritual lens because I that's kind of how I was raised. And yet for your, I mean, I remember I had one friend in high school who was a Baha'i. I remember him telling me about this and I was so opposed to all religion at the time that I only saw this as being multiple follies. And so when I was reading your books and you would describe Baha'i, the Baha'i faith, now I have read a lot of those texts that you describe. Mm. And, and so the, no, the multiplicity of vision, but the unity of vision, now seems something very uh, at attractive to me. But you also mm. write in, in your books, in, in Soul Pancake, you write, my parents were dysfunctional misfits who couldn't effectively parent a sack of russet potatoes, but they were good-hearted dysfunctional misfits with eclectic and expansive ideas. This is surprising as one reads it that people who in some ways were so ahead of their times or apart from their times might also have, and I think you, you talk about your home not having a complete absence of loving feeling. I think this is surprising to readers that there would be this dichotomy among the people who were otherwise raising you in such, I think, an enlightened way. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're, you're so insightful. And I love hearing this question very much. So my father passed away about three years ago of heart disease during COVID, and I write about it extensively in my book, uh, Soul Boom, where I write about a chapter called Death and How to Live It. And The Bassoon King being a little bit more of a memoir, I kind of go into my family a little bit more. My mom left me and my dad when I was about a year and a half or two years old. She had a series of misadventures and drug adventures and several marriages and Occasionally, I'd see her for like a, you know, an ice cream cone, but I didn't really spend any time with her until I was about 15 years old. My stepmom, my dad remarried right away, and I had a stepmom who, let's just say, had anger issues and rage issues. So this caused me a lot of trauma. And I think that perhaps you have a certain percentage of your listening audience that can relate to religious trauma. I remember I was working with the great film director, Roger Michelle in England, and he said, oh, Rain, I understand that you believe in God and religion and all that. And I was like, yeah, I do. And, and he's like, oh, I don't. I said, oh, you don't, you don't believe in God? Oh, no, no. Um, my parents dragged me to mass five days a week, and I had to be an altar boy, and I had to sing in the choir, and I had to fold the costumes and light the candles and... You know, I had to sweep up and uh, I could never believe in God. And here's this brilliant man who unable to see that those two things really had nothing to do with one another. The existence of a of some kind of creative force in the universe is really has nothing to do on whether or not his parents dragged him to mass. But for me, my trauma was I'm in a religion, Scott, where all we talk about is love and unity, and I'm in a family without any love or unity. So this was like a colossal mindfuck. It was like a gaslight beyond all measure for, you know, little prepubescent Rain Wilson, where I would, we'd be at a prayer gathering and talking about love and unity and singing. And, and then we'd get home and there'd be smashed dishes and my dad would shut down and stop talking for days. And my stepmom would slam the door and and then they'd pretend like nothing 
had happened. And here I am, eight, nine-year-old Rain, like, what the hell is going on? So part of the reason I left the Baha'i faith like I did at about age 20 was I really, I slammed the door and broke the dishes of my the faith of my youth because I just saw such hypocrisy in it. And and it and it led to a fair amount of trauma because uh, you know I had parents that didn't know how to hug or talk about feelings, and then a faith that was all about how much can we love each other and have compassion for each other and how kind can we be toward each other. So that'll mess you up. You also you you wrote um, I think it's in Bassoon King. Maybe walking away from faith is a necessary step in every young person's development. Yeah, the the Baha'i faith has a beautiful teaching that's at its core, which is the individual investigation of truth. Once you turn 15 as a Baha'i, you decide whether or not you want to become a Baha'i or not. And that really, parents don't have any say in that. And you have an obligation to find the truth for yourself. So I think for so many young people, you have to reject the faith of your parents and the reality of your parents and individuate and find life on your own terms. And I'm so glad I did. You know, I I found myself in my 20s in New York City. This was throughout most of the 90s, trying to be a professional actor, working in the theater, uh, struggling, dirt broke all the time, getting little odd jobs, driving a moving van to make ends meet. And... I became very, very depressed and very anxious and suffered uh, and got into a lot of addiction issues and was really suffering from what we now know as a mental health issue. And because of my background, because of the foundation I had in my faith tradition, I started investigating spirituality itself because I was so unhappy and occasionally it led to thoughts of suicide and I was like, oh, this is serious. Better fucking do something about this. So I started reading the Bible and looking for answers and you know, read the Quran and read many of the great spiritual texts. And um that's when I came back to the Baha'i Faith. It's, you know, I go into this in much more detail in mm -hmm. the Bassoon King, but that's when I came back to the faith of my childhood, but I had completely reconceived what it meant to be a Baha'i because I actually went to the source material and read the Kitabi Gan and the you know Epistle to the Son of the Wolf and the Kitabi Akdas and many of the, the sacred holy texts and you know dove into them as it were and came out with a a, a, a reconception of what it meant. So I think that that is a beautiful and important journey. I'm going to just jump to, I don't know why this popped up in my head and I feel like you can handle it, but here's one of my pet peeves. I encounter a lot of people that say this certain thing. In fact, I'm going to use my friend Jed as an example. So my friend Jed, I went to college with, we were buddies. In 1988, 89, he was like, yeah, I just don't know about God and higher power. I definitely believe there's something out there, but I'm just not sure what it is, and I can't really get with organized religion, and I, I know it's not an old man with a beard on a cloud judging me, but I just really struggle with that. 
you know, I struggle with this, right? Fast forward to a few months ago when I send him Soul Boom and we kind of get reconnected. And he's like, yeah, I just don't know where I stand with a higher power. You know, I know it's not an old man with a beard and I really struggle with organized religion and all of the evil that it does in the world. And I just don't know. And it's like, dude, you had 30 years, bro, to work on this and you didn't do it. And I do think that there is a certain amount of spiritual laziness in contemporary culture that I get very frustrated about and maybe I get a little judgy about and I shouldn't. And that's one of my worst qualities is being judgmental. Impatient and judgmental are my literally my two, ask my wife, those are my two worst qualities. But I, I, do, I do struggle with the idea that people have this kind of hang up about God, spirituality, but they don't do anything about it. Well, it's like, like, like read the pamphlets, go to the that's, meetings. That's right. Meditate, ponder, mm. meet with a guru, go to India. Like there's, you know, listen to Eckhart Tolle, read, read the source material. Like it's all there for you, you know, and there's podcasts. There's so mm. many ways to explore these issues. Anyway, so that's my little, I went off on a little rant, ranty tangent there, but. But but it's completely I, good because um, what what I think is that when you are, and I'm a generation older than you are, when we are young, we are so um, bombarded, particularly now we're so bombarded with stimuli and temptation and all, all sorts of um, material promises that for a lot of people when they're younger, and maybe this was true for me when I was younger, there was a sense that I'll deal with these notions of religion or God or whatever. When I get older, there'll be time. When I retire, then there'll be time for that. Mm -hmm. And so your friend is still waiting 30 years. And, and I find it, I wouldn't even call it laziness. I would say they think they can defer it. And it's a little bit like the, uh, the, the character in the cherry orchard who keeps warning that you're going to lose the cherry orchard. You know, mm. that we're all going to lose the cherry orchard at some point and people need to, need to be waking up to all of this. So I, I think also what seems to happen, but just to be clear, what also, um, is that when you were 15 and you had to make this decision with the church at 15, you're embracing it. Is that, is that yes. correct? Okay. And then what, and then what happens is you begin to get turned on by theater and acting and, mm. And, and the, the, the community that that brings and the activities that that brings, or even the social life uh, with, with, yep. with girls that that brings, sure. then crowds out the Baha'i community or, or the, the, the lessons or, or whatever you'd be required to do to be with that faith. It seems like this new thing then takes it over. That's an interesting take on it. I'm pondering that. My experience was, and I know one of the things you wanted to talk about was morality, but in the Baha'i faith, like almost every faith tradition, there is there is morality. And one of the moral laws in the Baha'i faith is no sex before marriage. And this seems almost preposterous in contemporary America, you know, in Western civilization to not have sex. But I had a, you know, a great attachment to my Baha'i upbringing. And I also wanted to have sex with my girlfriend and we moved in together and we were bonking. And how do I justify that? Now, 
listen, the Baha'i faith is very different than certain sects of Christianity. And I do say sects because there are over 2,000 sects of Christianity. So when people talk about Christianity, they often lump it all into one big category, which is preposterous. But unlike in many sects of Christianity, there, the concept of there's no hell in the Baha'i faith. So morality is there as a guideline for kind of your protection of the development of your soul. It's not there to punish you and be bad. And if you masturbate, you're going to go blind and God's going to smite you and, you know, you'll be cast out of the church or something like that. There, there are moral guidelines. There are helpful moral guidelines. So it's, it's slightly different. But nonetheless, I felt guilty. I wanted to use drugs and alcohol like all my friends were. I just wanted to be a, bo a free bohemian like my parents were in in Greenwich Village in the late 80s and early 90s and 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 party and and make plays and tell stories and and have sex and um and have fun. And so I just didn't want to think about religion or morality in any way shape or form. And then but then at some point you then ha have a sense that you need to return to some sort of consideration of spiritual questions but you don't instantly go back to Baha'i. You, you start reading yeah. all these different books, and the one that speaks to you turns out to, be, uh, turned out to be books on Native American spirituality. Mm. Yeah, so going back to Jed's question about a higher power, the first, when I was in the depths of my personal misery and mental health issues, I thought, well, before I go on a spiritual path, I need to really deeply consider, is there a God? And I, I need to really just kind of figure this out for myself. And I, I was not content in just letting that be some kind of vague idea. I mean, I really felt like there either is a God or there's not. It's kind of like being pregnant. Like you either are pregnant or you're not. It's just, there's no in-between. There's no kind of God. There's either an all-powerful kind of creative force pulsing through all the energy and molecules of this physical universe and potentially infinite other universes. Um, or it's just, you know, it's all random and we just got lucky and evolution gave us consciousness and we have bigger brains than monkeys and it's all a random happenstance uh, of this uh, incredible uh, universe that we live in. I respect both of those points of view, but I did need to figure it out for myself. And I was very much struggling. And then I started reading some books on Native American spirituality and kind of stumbled into a complete different reconception of what God could be. In the Lakota Sioux, God is called Wakantanka, which literally translates to the great mystery. And as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, wow, okay. I don't know if I believe in God, but I can believe in the great mystery. So I literally, for a couple of years, told friends, like, I don't believe in God, but I believe in Wakantanka. And, uh, and as I, st and there's not much to study there. I mean, I'm sure there is if you go to Pine Ridge and speak to medicine men and elders. I wasn't really in a position to be able to do that. But in what I did read, this conception of God was very much attached to nature. So it wasn't, there was no being associated with the great mystery. There was no daddy, sky daddy, 
judgment, judgy daddy, um, man being with powers, looking down, tabulating our ups and downs like Santa Claus. It's completely um, integrated with nature itself, with the beauty and mystery of the wind and the change of the seasons beyond time and space that we get to know through the the incredible, beautiful spiritual metaphors of you know the sun and the wind and the seasons. And as I dove into it, I was very taken, and I and I finally came around to like, okay, I can believe in the great mystery. And the, and I still to this day kind of when I say God in my head, I translate to the great mystery and brings me peace and joy and uh, and a smile. This amazing experience, <laughs> please tell this, the story that you talk about, the amazing experience of the coincidence while you were with a with someone who wasn't exactly in the same spiritual path, but you were, but you were both Met fans. Yeah, that's, um, we were Mets fans. My friend Phil, who I'm still good friends with, he's a poet and a teacher at Bard College in New York. And um, I was telling him about Wakantanka and uh, we were watching the baseball game. The Mets were down by a run in the ninth inning. And Phil was like, you know, well, prove it. Prove that Wakantanka exists. How do you prove that? And I was like, well, let's pray for a Mets victory, you know? Um, and uh, Daryl Strawberry was up on the plate and was on his short stint. I mean, he's mostly a Yankee, I think, but then he was on the Mets for briefly. And um, and I literally prayed to Wakantanka and I raised my arms high up in the air right in front of Phil. And I was like, oh, Wakantanka, oh, great mystery. Oh, God of the winds of the sun, beyond time and space, the God of our ancestors, the God of the animals that courses through all of life. If you exist, please prove yourself, show yourself and let Daryl Strawberry um win for the Mets. And I lowered my arms because I'd raised them high in the air. And we turned to the TV and Daryl Strawberry hits a two-run shot over the wall and the Mets win, walk off home run, bottom of the ninth. And our jaws dropped. And that is an absolutely 100% true story. Um, does it prove the, prove the existence of God? Of course not. But it's one of those confirming moments that confirms us in our guts. Yeah, and and where I am now with things like that is the episode in Jesus's life where bef be, after he's baptized by John the Baptist, before he begins his ministry, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and Satan tempts him in three different ways, but one of them is you could have all this. You could have look out over these these cities, you could it could all be yours. And his message is, don't tempt the Lord your God. So by by asking, or if one were to, let's say, command God to let your favorite uh, ball player hit a home run, you're kind of putting God on the spot. It's like um, asking questions in improv. You're kind of <laughs> negating the... Um, the, the the spirit of cooperation with with the universe or 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 the fact that you're actually acknowledging a a um 
status of humility to the creative forces of the universe. Well, you bring up a very important theological point, which is very embedded in Islam and in the Baha'i faith. It is not for man to tempt. It is not for man to question God. It is for God to question man. And this is a really important theme that runs through the Quran. And in fact, the other night was a Baha'i holy day. It was the declaration of the Bab, who is kind of the forerunner of Baha'u'llah in the Baha'i tradition. He's kind of like a John the Baptist figure. And he meets with a man named Mullah Hussein, who's looking for the promised one of the ages. And the Bab says, essentially, they're having tea, and the Bab says, it's it's me. I am this person. And he's kind of like, well, prove it. Write a dissertation on the Surah of Joseph from the Quran, which is the story of Joseph from the Bible. Joseph in that amazing Technicolor dream coat. And... And he says, it is not for man to question God, but for God to question man. But I will let this pass, and I will write your... And he wrote this. He just kind of uttered this beautiful and perfect dissertation on this mystical theme that runs through the Quran. And, you know, Mullah Hussein was flabbergasted and became the first believer in the Baha'i tradition. So in a sense, I was doing the same thing. I'm like, oh, yeah, God, if you exist, let the Mets win. Um I, yeah, there was a there is an arrogance in that, but you know I think God's open to that. I think, I think it's okay. God forgives us, and He understands that we're squabbling, little strange fleshy children, you know. And we've got ninety or a hundred years of digging in the dirt and trying to get our zooms to work and getting constipated and trying to eat Cheetos and wondering where to wipe our fingers and. God sees all this with great love and appreciation and grace. And we can question God. And I encourage the listeners to challenge God. He can, he, for lack of a better pronoun, he can handle it. We're going to take a quick break. And then we'll hear Rain's prime directive for a Star Trek-based spiritual revolution. I think a lot of people would agree with the premise of Soul Boom that we are living in very challenging, if not daunting and discouraging times. Why do you think a spiritual revolution is the answer? All right. So we're jumping ahead now to the big thesis of the book. Um, I feel like Everyone is dancing around talking about these incredibly broken systems and not going to what's essentially broken in their foundation. So we keep slapping Band-Aids on broken systems. Let's take partisan politics. The system itself is corrupt, rotten, broken, and unsustainable. It's not, oh, the Republicans are bad or the Democrats are bad. Now, one party happens to be worse than the other. I think the Republican Party is far worse than the Democratic Party, but the system that creates a you know bipartisan system is 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 colossally broken, as evidenced by the sheer hundreds of millions of dollars that are spent on these election cycles, mm. and we're not spending that money on feeding the poor and fixing health care. We're spending it on all of these campaign ads that play over and over and over again and and all this campaign research and polling and whatnot. And 
I'm just using this as one example that we need to radical, radically spiritualize systems. And this is going to the Star Trek of it all. So putting aside our personal, we've talked a lot about you know my kind of Kung Fu journey, right? Now we're going to the Star Trek conversation, which is humanity itself. So if we have a system, let's say healthcare, we have a system of healthcare that is based on profit. So it is sustaining by keeping people sick because the more people are sick, the more the companies profit. People, we talk about this all the time, but no one really talks about fundamentally changing the system to one based on spiritual qualities. And again, going back to our the very beginning of our conversation, what is that? Those those essential spiritual, divine, godlike qualities that we all contain in us of compassion, kindness, humility, honesty, love, understanding, wisdom, creativity. These are what makes humans radiantly humans. And we need to base systems on those aspects of ourselves. Healthcare can be based, and I, and I truly mean this, on compassion and service and healing and community. So as long as we're trying to pass this healthcare bill here and do this, slap this on here and raise a tax here and stop a, you know, a hedge fund from buying a hospital here, okay, that's fine. We're not getting any better. So I'm really talking about a spiritual revolution because kind of across the board, we need to rethink like how we're doing most everything. And I know that's a big ask. It's huge and it's way easier said than done, but people are dying. We're headed towards war. We're headed towards some kind of economic collapse, certainly towards climate collapse. And the stakes are really high. So we've tried the kind of liberal secular model. And you know what? It's not working and it didn't really work. I had a lot of friends who talked about how great the Obama years were and the Clinton years were. And, you know, a lot of my secular friends thought, oh, Obama's president, everything's going to be fine now. We're going to cure racism. We're going to solve income inequality and all the countries are going to join in this kind of like democratic celebration of secular uh, values. And we're not. And we're actually going backwards because I don't, I still don't think, you know, I think Obama was a great and wise leader. I'm not knocking him per se. I just think the system the foundation of the system has been has been corrupted by termites and you we can't just keep you know slapping two by fours on it i would also say that the same people that elected him twice did not turn out for the midterms so he did not have the support in congress whereby he might have been more effective but let me um let me let me enlarge the discussion a bit because one of the things that i have found through the reading through the the three books, and also Geography of Bliss. I feel like, and even today, I feel like you have made a very compelling case for the Baha'i faith. I feel like in your writings, you make a compelling case for 12-step programs, which I tremendously admire. I've read the blue book. I've, I've, I've attended some meetings with friends to be supportive of them. I don't have at least those identifiable addictions whereby there's a group for me, maybe Overthinkers Anonymous would be the one that I would be attending <laughs> if it existed. But but let's found it. Okay. 
So my mm. my notion to you, my question to you is, some of the qualities that you posit in this religion that you would create already exist in some of these institutions you've been a part of. So for instance, no clerics. You very persuasively describe the lack of hierarchy within both 12 steps and, and in Baha'i. Are these institutions not flexible enough to contain the sort of change that you are advocating? So in Soul Boom, I, I have a chapter called, Hey Kids, Let's Build the Perfect Religion, where we take your, and this is what you're referencing about like clergy, the absence of clergy. And I do reference both the Baha'i faith, which does not have clergy, and the 12-step tradition, which does not have clergy, as examples. Because I feel like, and this is uh, an issue, is that people have so wholeheartedly rejected religion, and everyone says with disgust, well, I can never be part of an organized religion. And I completely understand. I just read the headline the other day about the Catholic Church in Chicago and the, the the thousands of abuse cases. I mean, it's it wasn't like a dozen. I mean, it's hundreds. It's thousands. It's it's pervasive, and I understand that the disgust uh, around that. And there's so many other examples. But and it's true, Scott, that throughout that chapter, where I'm asking people to kind of pull their favorite stuff from different religious traditions and put it in a big jambalaya and and see what happens, see what see what we can cook up. It's true that a lot of those are similar and related to the Baha'i faith. I'm not, I don't have some secret agenda to write Soul Boom and to kind of convert people to Baha'i. It works for me. I think there's a lot of great and lasting beauty to it. Uh, and I've, you know, I've spoken about that before, but more importantly, I think we just need to be a, thinking about spirituality as a potential tool for personal and social change, not just personal change, but personal and societal change. And we need to kind of rethink religion itself and kind of re-examine what religion does give us, because essentially what we're missing from the modern world with the mental health crisis that's going on right now is we're missing religion, because that's what religion gave us, meaning, purpose, community, transcendence, uh, I was talking to a friend who I played tennis with named Ray, and he was talking about how when he, he was in Atlanta, they joined the Methodists, and his wife got a hip operation, and every day they had a different hot dish show up at their front door. Every day, the people from the church, knock, knock, hey, I brought you a lasagna, hey, I brought you a casserole. They know how to care for their own. And he said it was really beautiful, it was really touching, you know? And it almost like he doesn't know about some of the beliefs here or there or the church itself, but they had this thing down. And that's, don't we kind of need that in the United States right now? People to bring us casseroles on a regular basis? There's a, uh, the novelist Walter Kern and journalist who he wrote the book up in a way that the George Clooney movie was based on. And he talks about a period where his family uh, was struggling and the mother would take them all to a laundromat where they do all the clothes, wash them all. And he talked about at the laundromat, they were befriended by Mormons. And he said, it, it, it soon became the center of our social lives, that there were bonds that were created in the different activities. But this notion of community, that's close to the faith of my father and mother. Good people doing good things for other people. 
and especially mm. people in need. But, but me, here's the thing. Yeah. So for a lot of secular folks who might be listening or agnostic folks like, well, you don't need a religion to do that. And it's true. You don't. But you know what? It's also not happening for folks that aren't in religion. So yeah. I, I find that to be a kind of like, like, show me the data, show me the hard data of this is, and this is, this is probably going to get some pushback and maybe piss some people off, but show me the hard data of atheists and even agnostics being an active part of community building, connecting, loving, serving one another, supporting a large group of people, not just your close family or people in your cul-de-sac. You know, I would love to see the data points around that because I do think that obviously I'm advocating for some, if not a specific religion, like tools of religion for kind of grassroots change. And I would just, you know, I'd love to be proven otherwise, but I just, I don't, I don't see it. What has surprised you most about reactions either from strangers or friends or reviewers? What has surprised you most about the reaction to Soul Boom? What has surprised me the most about the reaction to Soul Boom is how open people are to it. And because I, I sat at this desk, I'm recording it right now in my underwear, and I slaved away for three years on this thing. And I had no idea how people were going to receive it. I knew a certain handful of my friends would really dig it because we have these conversations. But people have been very open to the ideas in it because I think that the world is hurting. We're in a lot of pain. Things seem very lost and on the wrong track. And people are now kind of in a new way that maybe they weren't during the Obama years, but now in a new way, kind of like, God, show me something that's going to work because the current systems aren't working. So there is a tremendous openness. I have been um, attacked, pilloried, excoriated by some like Christian news sites about it because I talk about a lot of different faith traditions and I talk about spirituality versus religion and just encouraging people to explore spirituality itself. I do also champion the idea of what a religion is and does, systemic kind of organization of uh, spiritual beliefs and put into action. And then, you know, some people on the left have attacked me for talking about like morality and also championing religion and stuff like that. So I'm kind of getting it from both sides. So I know I'm in a good place if I'm if I'm getting it from both sides, I feel like I'm 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 in the right uh, wheelhouse, and you're being true to yourself. Yeah, and I I really used to I cared so much, Scott, what people thought of me. You know, my whole life as an insecure, quote unquote, unlovable young actor, and you know, through the office and through the movies that I did, and you know, trying to get more work and trying to have a decent career other than Dwight. And I really turned a corner. I'm not exactly sure why or when or how, probably through all that friggin' therapy, uh, where I just, I don't give a shit anymore. Like this is, to me, these spiritual ideas, they, they helped me and they helped save my life. I truly believe that spiritual tools can help, help, maybe not fix, but truly deeply help with the mental health epidemic going on with young people. And I truly believe that broad-minded spiritual ideas in the Star Trek path can help humanity 
mature. And and it's not just like, oh, this is a good idea. It's like, we're on the verge of destruction. Like, let's pull the rug out from under how things are right now and start to really reconceive humanity. Rain and I talked for 90 minutes, and I'd love you to hear as much of it as possible. So let's end part one of our conversation here. And next week in part two, we'll explore, among other things, his new travel series on Peacock, Rain Wilson, and the Geography of Bliss. And in the meantime, you can email me the manifesto of your spiritual revolution at yegodspodcast at gmail.com. Please review Ye Gods on Apple Podcasts. And until next week, when we hear Rain Wilson's sequel, I'm Scott Carter. Live long and prosper.